Don't worry, everybody. The new episode is coming right up. But first, I want to remind you there are three quick ways that you can support the Fat Guy Forum and help the show keep going. First, make sure that you have rated and reviewed the show on whatever pod service you're using, whether that is Apple, Spotify, or whatever it is. Make sure you're doing that. Two, you can join the Patreon for a few dollars a month. You get access to the after show. You help keep things going because this show does have costs. And you're able to be a part of the Fat Guy Forum community that I would love to see grow, get your input on what you want to see going on with the show, and more. And the third and final way, if you can't join the Patreon, but you're buying products for yourself that I'm an affiliate for, like Redmond Real Salt and Kettle and Fire Bone Broth, there are links and codes in the show notes where you will save money when you use them, and I get a little bit to help things going here. So, please... Pick at least one of those ways to support the show if you enjoy listening to it on a regular basis, and know that I appreciate whatever you choose to do. And now let's get on with the episode. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the next episode of the Fat Guy Forum. This is your host, Gourmet. I am excited to be with you today. Before I say howdy to this week's guest, I do want to let you know that in two weeks, it is going to be my 50th birthday weekend, and I have a very special episode of the show planned for that weekend, so... Watch for more details on that soon. Just a little bit of a teaser, but it may involve some people who've been on the show coming back, and you know we'll we'll get into that soon. But for right now, let's get to this week. I am sitting down today with Dave Fennell. Dave, how are you doing? Doing good, man. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm excited. We're getting to connect and talk, man. I'm ready to dive into your story, and I'm sure we're gonna have a lot to talk about. So let's get to it, man. Tell us what qualifies you to be on the Fat Guy Forum. Yeah, man. I think. Qualifies a tough a tough word. Uh, my short answer is is that I've I've been a fat guy my whole life, right? Um, but you know, to get in deeper, um, man, as a young kid, I you know I just as a young kid, I I just learned some bad habits, uh, and I'll and I'll start uh, from the beginning because I just think it started there. Um, you know, I grew up as a only child in a single parent home, uh, raised by my mother. My dad was relatively non-existent wasn't a situation that I didn't know uh, who or you know where he was. He just wasn't around. Um, and I had a mom who uh, was involved in what I would consider now looking back active food addiction. Um, man, she died at 68. So the majority of my life, as long as I knew her, you know, for those uh, 40 years that, that I was alive with within her life, uh, she just struggled with active food addiction. But it was really, really prominent um, at, at my younger years. You know, I grew up in this house where my mom had this major life transition around 30 where, um, and it was spiritual, right? This spiritual life transition where she kind of went from this fray of, uh, chaos and craziness, uh, to having me on, on accident. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, right. My, my father and her weren't married and they weren't in a relationship. Uh, so it was just kind of, oops, I'm pregnant and here we go. Um, and her past was very traumatic. You know, she had a, she was passed around house to house. Uh, I don't think she was ever in the system formally, but lived with multiple families throughout her childhood and just had a very traumatic, traumatic childhood, a very abusive, a lot of abandonment, a lot of chaos. And um, as anybody knows, you don't just get rid of that, right? So it carried on into her parenting of me. So my younger age, uh, although there were a lot of really good things that came out of that, right? Like, you know, she got out of where she was at and we were in a different place. And um, she was beginning to learn stability. I was also, 
you know, three, four, five, six years old while she was just in the beginning stages of some of that healing. And so I was the kind of the, the source or the, I don't know what you want to call it, man, just the, the person she took it out on. So as a young kid, there was a lot of physical abuse and there was this, a lot of rage on her end and a lot of anger. And, you know, I was a, I was a sharp kid and with a sharp mouth. And sometimes I set that off and sometimes I set that off intentionally. Um, but what happened out of that was that there was this revolving kind of circle where it always ended with binging. And so, you know, from a young age, I grew up in, in Northwest Ohio in a small town called Fremont. I was born in Toledo. Uh, and then, like I said, we left. So we went to this small town about 45 minutes south. And we had this day old bread store in our town. It was a, it was like a hostess affiliate, if I remember. And whenever those chaotic rage events would occur, uh, especially when they led to, you know, physical abuse, it would always end the same way. Obviously there's tears and crying and, you know, franticism and, uh, chaos on both sides. But then we would like pray together and you know ask for forgiveness and me for my behavior and her for hers and then she would run off to the day old bread store literally get two you know grocery you know small plastic grocery bags full of you know hostess and the best things in the world back then and we would just binge eat them you know they would be gone in in days and so from a really really young age i began to equate food with emotional help right? It was what I ran to. Um, and I learned to self-medicate as young as, you know, four or five years old. Um, and so that kind of became the staple, man. I, you know, it's funny. I, I tell people all the time, like, you know, only since I've had surgery, have I understood the feeling of a hunger pang for real. Uh, I didn't eat. I didn't eat because I was hungry. I ate for every other reason, but happiness, anger, sadness, anxiety, depression, like food was my was my main run to for every feeling and every source of comfort. And so <clears throat> that just kind of compounded over, you know, the source of you know the time through my childhood. So on top of it, there's these this other layer of stuff. You know, we were a poor family. It was just my mom and I. And you know, when I say poor, like I, I told a friend of mine not real long ago that the difference between country poor and city poor is that in the country, you don't go hungry. But in the city, there were many times I remember growing up and, you know, not really having food. She would you know go to work and be there by 6 a.m. I would open the refrigerator. And I, I can remember like opening the refrigerator and seeing a gallon of milk with a foam head on it and know that it was powdered milk. And you know, I might have two dry butt ends of bread and some ketchup and have to eat a ketchup sandwich. So that was even part of it as well is, you know, there was a sustenance side where like, if I was at a friend's house that happened to not be so poor and there was food, man, I ate, you know what I mean? I wasn't afraid to even binge eat other places. Um, again, in context, at, the, at that age, I didn't know that that was binging. To me, that was representation of what I saw at home. So it was no different. Um, and I'm not sure I ever put the pieces together. I'm not sure as a young kid, I ever was able to, you know, and I've thought about this a lot, man. And I can think about one instance when I was probably, you know, I don't know, fourth grade, fifth grade, where our, the local pastors that we were real close with the church we went to had taken a different position about two hours North in Detroit. And we were visiting their church and them for the weekend. And I was running around the church with one of those church kids and they had donuts. 
And so, you know, he was a normal kid, man, normal size, normal, you know, thin, normal kid. And I remember grabbing a donut and I went back for another one because to me, like you binge, right? And he looked at me really odd and was like, wait, you're going to get another one? And that might have been the first time in my life that I like came face to face with some abnormality around food. It was like, wait a second, you know. Um, but then on top of the physical abuse at home, man, you know, part of growing up in poverty is there's other things that you run into, right? And so I went through a, you know, a 12 year period where there was sexual abuse involved. And then, you know, I, I think I used in, in the bio to you the word spiritual abuse, which I, I'm really care. I'm really careful to use that word because, you know, my mom, man, she was an incredible mother and, and really, I, I can honestly say with, with pure, like just purity that she did the best she could do. Right. I don't have any ill will or anger, even in her death. I have zero, like I've been able to work through a lot of that. And, and she busted her tail to be an incredible mom. And she was an incredible mom, but there were things that she was discovering her own faith that she was trying to instill within me. That as I look back now, I'm like, wait a second, man. Like, you didn't put this in context and there was no framework around it. So like I was just discussing this with my wife a few weeks ago, my mom would say stuff to me like, you know, David, all you really deserve is hell and death. Well, that's a tough thing at five, six, seven years old to try to, to try to process. Right. And so I was like, I told my wife, like, no wonder I've sabotaged every good thing that's happened. Right. Good relationships and good opportunities and, you know, all those types of things, because to me, my deservedness was death and hell. And I'm only now at 41. Am I beginning to kind of break through that and understand that, man, it was just a contextual thing. Like she didn't mean it that way. But as a young kid, it was just this hodgepodge of trauma with no real advocacy in the home. And so I was a bit emotionally, at least separated from even my own environment. So I learned at a really young age, man, like how to read people and how to not trust people. And those became survival instincts, right? I learned how to lie. I was very good at that. I was very dishonest as a young kid because I never understood or I never knew like if I got caught in the middle of a lie, what my mom's reaction would be to that. You know, sometimes she was the, you know, hey, Dave, you don't need to do this. Other times it was rage. It was complete rage. And so I learned at a really young age how to be dishonest and how to be really good at that. Um, and it took me into my even early adulthood to kind of come to terms with that's, you know, the fact that that's who I was. Um, so anyways, you know, you fast forward into, you know, my, I would say, what are your formative years, right? 12, 13, 14 teenage years. I was always a really athletic kid. My dad was a really high level wrestler. My uncles were really high, high level wrestlers. And, and so I had a genetic kind of propensity to athleticism. And so fortunately, growing up in this housing project, I was the minority there, right? Um, I got along with people because I could compete with them athletically. And so that is as great as it was built a bit of a roadblock in the way that I viewed myself, because even as a big kid, I could I could compete with smaller kids, I was as fast as them and as strong as them and as competitive as them. And so it never really you know, I wouldn't maybe not as good in some areas, but definitely I could still compete. And so I didn't think about my diet and the way that I looked necessarily. And, you know, man, I was a young kid that ran around with 
bare feet and no shirt on. Like I was never a kid who was ashamed of the way that he looked. I, I, I just wasn't. I didn't live with that insecurity, um, which I'm actually now very, very thankful for because I think a lot of people do. Um, and I didn't grow up that way. But <clears throat> I was shrouded. I didn't understand that I was this food addict in the making, or I could even go back and say that I was food addicted at a really young age. Um, so as I got into my teenage years, I just continued to play sports, man. I was a big kid. But again, like I, you know, I left public school at the end of sixth grade. Uh, my mom wanted me to go to private school. My dad actually stepped in and paid for a year of Catholic school, which was the worst year of my life. Um, you know, I was a poor Baptist kid going to a school full of wealthy Catholic kids. And I didn't fit. I didn't fit in, man. My clothes weren't as nice as theirs and they didn't fit as well and they couldn't be replenished at the same rate. Um, and so there was some, you know, bullying and being made fun of. Uh, I also played, it was my first year playing tackle football and I took a kid starting job. And that was, you know, again, for me, a very proud moment, but it backfired in the way that I got treated. Um, and so again, the food thing, I can remember walking home from school and saving a couple dollars from lunch. And, you know, there's this little like chain Chinese restaurant. I don't know if they exist anymore, but it was called Magic Walk. And I can remember walking in Magic Walk with like three bucks and getting three egg rolls and smashing them on the way home. And those things became habitual, right? Just a couple dollars in my pocket. I would run through a gas station and get candy or this, you know, and then go home and eat. Um, and as I look back now, I was building habitual things that I didn't know would manifest later in my life that certainly did. But my ability to compete and my ability to play sports, again, shrouded a lot of what, you know, some of the, I, I maintained weight maybe a little bit better than some kids. I didn't, you know, I was a really big kid. At seventh grade, I was 200 pounds, um, but 200 pounds with the ability to compete with kids, you know, smaller than me. And so it just never, just never registered, to be honest. Um, and then... You know, that carried through high school. In high school, I was a pretty decent athlete and played football and could compete and worked really hard. And and so when you put that sort of physical effort forth, like I, I was a really strong kid and had some, you know, muscle mass and, you know, I was I was a letter winner playing football. And again, like a lot of that stuff was masked. Um, and I graduated high school right around like 325 pounds um, and I was a center. So I was a pretty big center really to play football, but I was, I was talented. And so, you know, there were some, you know, conversations around playing at the next level and, you know, those things were, you know, potentials for me. Um, and I jumped on one of those opportunities and I went to uh, Liberty University, uh, Jerry Falwell's school, or I guess Jerry, rest in peace, Jerry Falwell, but his school then, and I didn't make it. I went down to play. I really, it just didn't pan out is what I'll say. And I ended up leaving in November of that year uh, without even making a semester. Um, and it was that time right after getting home because I look, man, I, I, I felt like, and I did, I didn't just feel like I let a lot of people down by dropping out of college at 18. And I think I hit my first, man, I don't remember exactly time frame wise, but it wasn't long after that, that I stepped on a scale and I was 360 pounds. And man, I don't know, but like, maybe it's just how our brains work because 40 pounds isn't like some gross amount of weight, but in the way that I visualized it, like 360 was almost 400. Whereas, you know, 320 is almost 300. And so that scared me, 
You know, I was 19, 18, 19 years old when that happened. And so I immediately went on the keto diet, lost the, or it wasn't keto back then, but the Atkins diet dropped a quick 40, hovered around 320 pounds. And then that summer uh, I contacted my youth pastor who at that point was in Farmington, New Mexico. And I literally with $350 in my pocket drove my 1995 Volkswagen Jetta from Fremont, Ohio to Farmington, New Mexico to kind of begin life. Right. Um, yeah, it was a, it was an interesting decision, but I think it was probably the best decision I've ever made if I, if I look back at it. So I, I went out there and I maintained my weight the whole time I was there, uh, from 2002 to late 2005, I stayed right between 300 and 320. Um, and so, Man, it was pretty, and as I look back at that time, it was pretty healthy. I was coaching football. I was working full time. I ended up in school. Uh, it's where I got my my short education in a field called natural gas compression. So I've worked in the natural gas industry since 2000, late 2003. Um, and so when I jumped into that, like, man, it was great. Well, then I got married and boom, chaos, divorce within nine months. And I was back home, you know, with nothing. Uh, but I did have a little bit of an education and so there was a bright spot there, but, um, and immediately I fell right back into food addiction. So I came back at probably 325, 330 and within six, eight months, I was 360, 370. Right. And I kind of hovered there and would gain 10, 15 pounds, you know, you know, the yo-yo. Uh, and then nine, 10 months later, after working in a factory, I was like, man, I have a little bit of an education and it just so happened that hurricane Katrina had kind of come through Louisiana. So about, I guess it was about nine months after that, I got an offer to go to a home of Louisiana and I did. And so kind of the same thing. I didn't really know a lot, a lot of people. I had a less than uh, desirable vehicle. I wasn't even sure it would make it, but I jumped in with probably 300 bucks in my pocket and drove from Fremont, Ohio to home of Louisiana to start this new life. And it was when I was offshore, it was when I was working in the Gulf of Mexico that my weight really got out of hand. Um, and I think when I say that to people, they're like, like, man, that's hard work. And it is really hard work. And I was always a really hard worker. But those offshore production platforms, man, are literally like living on a gas station in the middle of the water. And so my sugar addiction, so for me growing up with my mom and I, I always made jokes with people like, I feel like you're either, either a cheesy carb person or you're a sugar person, right? And I am 100% a sugar, like I'm a sugar addict, no two ways about it. And so here I am doing this work and at night I'm sneaking up top to grab and literally, man, they would have full boxes of Reese's and Hershey's with almonds and, you know, cakes and ice cream and i would i can remember going up there and like just snagging whatever i wanted and mowing through it and putting it underneath other things in the trash so that nobody would know right and that was around the first time i weighed in at 400 pounds i remember going to a heliport to fly out on a job and i had to step on a scale as a matter of fact if you've ever seen uh, i forgot what it's called deep water horizon i believe with my with uh, mark Wahlberg. So the heliport that he flies out of in that movie is a heliport called Galliano Airlog. It's owned by Bristow. And in that, that heliport, I crew changed out of for a number of years. But because it's so large, they actually make you step on a scale. 
And so it's like a big freight scale. So it's not like you can't, you, you can't hide it, man. You know what I mean? There's, there's no hiding. And there's literally like this big marquee that your weight pops out on. And so I put my luggage on, they took my luggage off and then I stepped on the scale and I think I was like 412 pounds. Um, and yeah, you know, the sense of shame, like to see that three turn into a four, uh, is tough. Right. But it didn't change my approach. Uh, that shame sent me right back on that vicious cycle. And so I think I peaked in the Gulf of Mexico right around 465 was the heaviest I got. Um, again, still very active at my job, still very good at what I did, still very able to do my job, which I look back on now as a blessing because a lot of people who get that heavy can't, but I still ran the steps every day and did my work and bounced around and people would I can remember the comments like, ah, man, you don't move like you're as big as you are. How do you do this? And again, it was just genetics. I, I think I, I came from a relatively large family structurally. So I did have the structure to support my weight to a certain extent. There was athleticism there. And so I never let that be my crutch. I still felt like I owed a, you know, a fair, I was getting paired of, paid a fair wage and I needed to give a fair amount of work. Um, but I continued to fight that. And I yo-yoed through those years, man. I got to 465, dropped to 420. But for whatever reason, from about 2006 to 2016, I could not break the 400-pound plateau. I just couldn't do it. I, I did everything I could, and I got as close to like to like 403, I think, was as close as I got to breaking it. And then shame, vicious cycle, boom, back in at 450, you know? So when... 2000 and and from there i left the gulf of mexico in 13 uh the marcellus and utica shale had really picked up uh throughout pennsylvania and ohio and so an opportunity presented itself for me at the tail end of 13 to come back to ohio and my dad had just passed away um and i was like i said before never real close with him but i think that keyed something off in my mom where she was like dave dave you've been gone for a long time like why don't you think about maybe coming up here and working and so I did. I, I came up and I interviewed and I took a position and, you know, that wasn't as, it was a really good job, but for nine months, I worked no less than a hundred hours a week. Um, and that's literal, but like I didn't work less, less than a hundred hours in a week. And, and I would even argue closer to like 110, 115 for that whole nine month stretch. You know, I had experience, the guys I was working with didn't, it was really chaotic. We were building compressor stations at a rapid rate. I was the lead, and so I had to run this crew of guys. And what that did for me in my addiction is it kept me feeding at really bad places. So it was, you know, man, I knew Speedway food better than anybody knew Speedway gas station food. And we had a little place down the road called The Duchess, and I would go there, and it was bar food and pizza and just not good stuff, you know? And I continued to gain weight. And so when I left there and – I think it was August of 14, I went to a company called Rice and I started to work for them. But again, it was so many hours, it was kind of the same thing. And then I ended up at uh, with a major pipeline company in 15, and I think I peaked at like 480 pounds. And so through that time, I, you know, I worked as an operator and then ended up taking a job as an SME in Northeastern Pennsylvania, where I am currently. And I can remember a night must have been it was january 11th i started the weight loss so it had to have been tail end of december of, of 15 and i woke up out of my sleep i was sleeping on my back and i woke up gasping for air 
And I think that was the first time I was scared, right? Like I had experienced the, the swollen ankles and the legs and I had, you know, I was experiencing some of, you know, I don't think people who aren't morbid obese don't understand, but people that are do like the lack of urine control and some of those things. Like I, I had experienced some of those, but I wasn't experiencing like what I considered like to be real physical ailments. And when I jumped out of bed that night and couldn't breathe, I was like, oh crap, man, I could die. So I reached out. Uh, one thing that I, I haven't gotten into is during that time, uh, I started to manage MMA fighters in like 2000, I don't know, 11 or 12. Um, and so I, I actually, it's weird how that industry works, but I knew some people. And so I reached out to a buddy of mine who's since passed away and he passed me on to a nutrition, a nutritionist. And I would be remiss if I didn't like say something about Lou Giordano, but Lou ran a company called Nutrition. And so I reached out to Lou and he was like, man, I'd love to meet with you. I'm in Jersey. You're not far away. Like, why don't you come over and meet me on a Saturday? So I did. I drove, uh, I don't know, from northeastern Pennsylvania to where we were in Jersey. It was about an hour drive. I drove and I met him at a coffee shop. And I can remember, like, he looked at me dead in the face and said, Dave, look, I could give you a food plan, but you don't have a lack of knowledge of nutrition. He's like, you've been managing fighters for the past five or six years. Like, you literally lead these guys on weight cuts. You know, you know how to do this and you know what to do. Your issue is not like knowledge. It's mental, man. It's mental health. You have a mental health issue. And I think that was probably the first time in my life that I was ever like, wait a second. Like, he's right. Like, this is meant like this is a mental health thing. Right. And so in 2016, I started on January 11th and I'll never forget it as long as I live. He shook my hand and he said, I don't want you to follow a diet. I'm going to give you five rules to follow. And I want you to follow those five rules to a T. I don't want you to weigh yourself. I don't care about all the BS. This is what I want you to do. And from January 11th of 2016 till like August of 2016, I lost about 155 pounds. So I went from 480 down to about 330 and I was able to eclipse that 400 mark, right? And I was like, holy crap, man, I'm, I'm doing it. Well, I, well, I was only part Can I ask, what were, what were the five things? Yeah, I'll tell you. So the first rule was that I had to eat within an hour of waking up. The second rule was is that I couldn't go shorter than two hours or longer than five hours between meals. The third rule was that I had every meal I ate had to consist of a protein, a carb, and a fat. Uh, the fourth rule was that at nighttime, my last meal of the day could only be a protein and a fat, no carb. And then the fifth rule wasn't that I had to drink a, like a, a certain amount of water. It was just that I had to prioritize water, right? Cause he was like, listen, man, if you're carrying a gallon of water around, all that's going to happen is the bicep that you're carrying, it's going to get bigger. Like, I don't want you to focus on ounces. I just want you to prioritize it. And I was like, okay. And that's what I did. What I noticed is by Easter of that year. I literally was doing dishes and I looked into my cabinet and all of my big plates, like the top plate that sat in my cabinet had dust on it. I hadn't eaten on a normal size plate since I started. I was eating on little salad plates the whole time because I was eating so often, right? And so I was like, oh, all right, you know? And so I did really well on that man for those nine months. Well, in August, my schedule changed. And so I went from working a pretty standard 40 hours a week at tech services to an area of much more responsibility. 
and I was really involved in jiu-jitsu. I, I love to grapple. Like I said, my I come from a family of wrestlers, so I just fell in love with jiu-jitsu. That, that was my outlet. Like That's what I went and did. Six days a week, I did jiu-jitsu. And I even competed at the tail end of that in New Jersey. And that went away. My ability to make it to jiu-jitsu class at night went away. And then, again, man, you just fall right back into that vicious cycle, right? You shame, it's shame. It's, it's food. It's just this spiral of addiction. And so I didn't gain all my weight back right away. I would say it probably took, I don't know, two years. But I got heavier than 480, right? And so... I remember, I'm trying to think of when I hit 500, because I don't really know. I never saw 500 on the scale by itself. It was like 517, I think, is the highest I had seen. Um, but needless to say, well, from can, two... Can I ask a question? You know, I want to... You know, you're, you're doing a great job telling your story. So, one, I want to give you a, a chance to take a breath. Um, make sure, you're, make sure you're, you're, you're not getting winded on me. Um, yeah, I got to get a drink here. <laughs> but... I'm curious, like knowing, you know, having had that conversation, you know, and kind of that awakening that it wasn't just a physical dietary thing going on, that there was a mental health side to it. Were you conscious when you were especially regaining the weight? Were you conscious of it as an addiction at that point? Or was it more, you know, like you said, you you were in those places where you knew you were using food for emotions and all the other pieces of it, but hadn't really come to that point yet? Oh no, super conscious. Yeah, yeah. So and that made the that made the cycle more vicious. Because at that point, I felt as if I was doing it willfully, right? And I here's the thing, man. I, I hadn't faced any of that trauma. I hadn't, you know, it took me till I was 30 to even talk to my mom about it. And at this stage, like, you know, she thought we were past it. But unfortunately, you build this emotional wall that like you don't really ever get past it. Like you accept it and move on, right? And so I wasn't willing to come face to face with that stuff. I just wasn't. I wasn't ready to walk through the sexual abuse and the physical abuse and how that affected me. And, you know, with the issues I had with intimacy and those like really deep seated, dark issues, man, I was in no where I was nowhere willing to deal with that stuff. Um, and so I think it changes the cycle. It makes it a little it makes the spiral a little tighter and spin a little faster when you feel now like you're willfully doing it and it's not not just on accident. And so I was keenly aware of it. If there's one thing I gained from my mother, it was the ability to be introspective um, and to really understand where my struggles and flaws were. And so recognizing it, yeah, like uh, I think I 100% knew. Um, but I had tried some stuff, man. Like I went to therapy a few times and I just... I can't really tell you why I didn't like it. I just never felt like it was productive. And maybe that was just the therapist. I, you know, I don't know. And maybe it was my lack of willingness to sit there and listen. Like I could, cause I'm a, you know, I struggle with pride and ego. And so um, I'll, I'll own a lot of that. Like maybe I just wasn't in a spot where I was willing to accept my own crap. Right. No, understood. And so, yeah. And, and I asked that question because I think I talk with people about that a lot. Like, the idea that when you become conscious of your behavior and you're still actively within that behavior, it's almost like it makes things worse. Like have, carrying that carrying that weight because it's not just that you're binging or using food as an emotional crutch, but when you're doing it, you're conscious of why you're doing it, but you're still not stopping it. And it's like, so what is it about, you know, it's, 
and I, it's one of the hardest parts of coming through the, you know, a journey like this is getting to the other side of that piece, but which I'm sure we're going to get to, but you know, I just, I, I wanted to under, have an understanding, you know, for people listening kind of where your consciousness was at that time. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough to even to talk about it now to think about it because it gets a little bit, like I said, a little bit more clear as you kind of continue to talk about it. Right. But yeah, it was, it was a hundred percent. And, and here's the thing, I'll say this, like for me, it wasn't always just food, right? Like I, I'm a self-medicator. So there were, even in the times that I was doing really well with food, I still used other things to self-medicate, right? I used drugs and I used alcohol and I used mismanagement of money and I used sexual things. Like I, I did, I ran to whatever I could to quelch whatever I needed to be comforted. So I never really broke the cycle of addiction. Even in 2016, when I dropped all that weight, I would argue that there were still areas of my life that I was running to other things. But, you know, when you work in the oil and gas industry, listen, man, I got to take drug tests. So drugs aren't really an option and they might be a one-time option, but they're not a daily option, right? Uh, alcohol always scared me because I had so much alcoholism in my family. And, and I'll be honest with you, I just hated hangovers. And so I hated hangovers enough that it just never was a really an option for me. But there was a lot of other things that filled those needs. And so, yeah, like I, I think during that time of losing weight, I was able to kind of maybe, you know, slow down the, the sugar addiction, but just use other things for self-medication. Um, so anyways, yeah, I, you know, I kind of got through that period. I gained my weight back um, and I actually met my wife during that time. Uh, at my heaviest, it's kind of crazy. I was probably 483, 185 pounds. And I walked into a Buffalo Wild Wings to watch a fight uh, with a good friend of mine. And she was the bartender. And we just had an incredible conversation. One thing led to another. Pretty soon we're buddies. Pretty soon we're dating. And I knew really early on that she was it. There wasn't even a question. She's 12 years younger than me. And so that was kind of odd at first. But uh, she's looking at me across the room and said 11. So uh, 11 years younger than me, but I knew really early on, man, like she just possessed some character traits. And let me say this, I'll throw this in there. There were two divorces. So I mentioned the one divorce in New Mexico, but now when I was 30, I was married again. And, and that ended in divorced very quickly as well. So when you're 480 pounds and you don't value yourself, I didn't feel like I had anything to offer. Right. But for the first time in my life, I met somebody that in a lot of ways was as jacked up as I was. So as we got to know each other and I got to tell my story to her, I remember like getting pretty dark and there was never, a, like there was never a point where she like rose her eyebrow or questioned it. It was just kind of was what it was. And I was like, well, man, if she can hear my story and take it on the chin like this and she's as authentic as she is and as honest as she is and as loyal as she is, this is it. I don't want anybody else. Like there's, there's not another soul. And so through 18, we went through some stuff, just her and I, and it, that it really affected our family. And then, you know, I continued to get heavier. And then in 19, that kind of slowed off. Uh, and I, and I will say this, man, like the one thing I'm proud of in my weight loss journey is I never quit. Right. I was always trying something. I was always trying keto or I was, man, I was always on something. And literally I can think of every conversation I had with my mother 
man, for my whole adult life, there wasn't a conversation that I remember that didn't e either start in the middle or end with what either of us were doing to try to lose weight, right? We were both grossly aware of where we were at and, and talked about it with each other often. And so we bounced ideas off of each other and we were, man, we were always trying something. So I, you know, apart from those, like those spiral runs that can last, you know, I don't know what your history is, but you know, they can last as short as two to three months and last as long as eight months. And, you know, when you're eating at that proportion, can, you can gain a hundred pounds in that eight month period without a lot of effort, honestly. And so, well, that kind I, of, to let you, I, I put 300 on in six months. So there you, there you go. There yeah. You, and, it's and possible. It's possible. Right. And oh, so yeah. as I was like, I would, you know, spike, bam, gain a ton of weight, lose some weight. Spike. It was just that, that vicious spiral. So that led mm -hmm. us into COVID COVID year. And in COVID I, you know, at that point I was a supervisor of operations for this pipeline company, which meant a lot more, you know, sitting in my chair at work and a lot less moving around. And when COVID happened, my manager asked me to work from home and I just, I just am not set up at home to do it. And I'm not wired that way. And so I was like, please, like, just let me work from the office. And she's like, look, you can, but your office door has to be shut. You know, the guidelines, right? So for nine months, man, I sat in that office and gained another, whatever, tons of weight. And so Labor Day of 2020, my wife and I decided to do 75 hard. Uh, I had been listening to some Andy Frisella stuff, um, and I was like, yeah, man, I'm ready for a change. Let's do it. And that's where that competitor, man, like that 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 dog, that competitor in me was still there. And my wife and I, 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 did, I intentionally didn't weigh myself prior because I didn't want it to be about that. I wanted to commit to the program and gain the mental acuity and the mental toughness from it. But I remember... Man, I remember my first. I don't. Are you familiar with the seventy-five hard program? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Actually, a so, couple of weeks ago, had someone on who actually works for Andy in the seventy-five hard area. So, all right, going. sweet. Yeah, so very rigorous, very challenging. And I remember getting up at three thirty in the morning, my first workout, which was just a walk. I, if I had to guess, Gormy, I was probably five hundred and twenty-five pounds at that point. I would think. And I'm walking down my street in no level of speed, right? I'm just kind of trying to manage. And I popped my calf. And, you know, the atrophy from sitting, you know, just your muscle loss and the atrophy, right? And I was like, how am I going to do this? Like, but I finished, man. My wife and I banded together and competed against each other. And we finished that. And when I weighed myself coming out of it, I think I was like 458. And you would think I would be really excited, but I wasn't because I didn't realize I was probably 530 pounds when I started. And so we kept with the program. As a matter of fact, we finished uh, November 23rd of, of that year. And so Thanksgiving was, you know, two days, three days later. And we went to the gym the morning of Thanksgiving together. Like that's, we were ready. Like we were, we were doing it and doing it together. And I was running. Like I remember like I wasn't long distances, but I was able to run on the treadmill for 20, 25 minutes at 450 pounds, which again speaks to genetics, I think, more than anything. And about two weeks after Governor Wolf from Pennsylvania shut down the state, including gyms, and we got hammered with snow. And that just kicked off another spiral. Um 
And so by March of, so three months later, I had gained every pound back and then some. And so I remember talking to my wife and I said, listen, I'm going to go look at surgery options. And there's a guy on Instagram named Fluffy Guy Fitness. Who's, mm-hmm. I think you guys follow, you know him, Justin. Oh, yeah. Yep. So it's funny. Justin's older brother and I graduated the same year. And when I told you I went to those private schools, Justin and his brother, we all were in school together. Oh, wow. And so yeah, I got to watch his transformation and watch him have the vertical sleeve and watch what it did. Right. And so I reached out to him during that time. And it's funny. He had no idea who I was. We were a couple classes apart. Once we talked a little bit and kind of connected, he's like, yeah, man, you know. So I just told my wife, I said, I, I can't do this the rest of my life. Like, I, I can't do it. I can't continue to yo-yo. I have to like take an extreme measure. And So I started to look through my insurance and my insurance at work was decent, but it's kind of odd. And then the local, you know, medical provider in the area didn't like the one that that had that surgery option, didn't like to work with my insurance. And so the next, you know, the next place over was two hours south of me and it would have just been a headache. And so then I started looking at self-pay options and I found a place in Birmingham and then I found a place in Las Vegas and I could have afforded them both, but they were pretty high. And so through that process, I found a clinic in Mexico. Mexico. Mm-hmm. I, and of course. I've had a couple ahead. guys on the show that have gone down there. So, yeah. Yeah. So I linked up with a place called Alo Bariatrics and I filled out their information. And within like a day and a half, I got accepted. I put down my deposit. But I couldn't schedule it until fall because, you know, when you work in the gas industry and I, at that point I'm on regulated pipeline, during a construction year, man, it is absolutely bananas. And as the supervisor of operations over this project, like it was super bananas. And I had three major projects happening at one time as part of one major kind of conglomeration. So I scheduled my surgery for November of 21. So I, you know, in March of 21, well, I just continued to gain weight. You know what I mean? Like the stress of work, the stress. And on my 40th birthday, my wife and I went to Boston. We just kind of took off for the weekend and went to Boston. And it's, man, this is embarrassing to tell, but I'm a foodie. I, even when you're a food addict, not everybody is, but I've always loved Food Network and love. I love to cook. It's one of my reasons I love your page because so much of what you cook, I'm like, yeah, man, that bacon and cabbage is one of my favorite things. Like I, I love to cook. As I was coming out of Boston Red Sox Stadium, and let me tell you what happened. When I got in there, I bought tickets. I went to go sit down. I couldn't fit in the seat. And so, again, shame, embarrassment, right, all those emotions. And I walk out, and Ming Tsai is, like, sitting on the stoop right across from, like, the opening of Fenway. Mm. There's, like, this back alley. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, you're from Mass, right? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm from Rhode Island, so I've been to Fenway a lot. Yep. So I walk out. And I'm like, I got to go meet him. Like, I used to watch this dude. So I walked up. And my wife got a picture. Well, when I saw that picture, man, I was like, holy crap. And again, man, I, that got me really excited about the surgery. But it didn't really change my, it didn't really change my, like, view on food. Well, at the same time, so that's August of, my birthday's August 20th. So that's August of, of 21. And at the same exact time, my mom started to have some health issues. And I remember her calling me and it was just like, Dave, like it's just because I'm too heavy. I don't have any strength in my legs. Like I can't walk. And it literally manifested in a matter of two months. So she started having that pain in June. By August, she was in a psych ward because she was in so much pain and couldn't handle herself and was having accidents that 
she told the emergency room nurse, like, look, if you send me home, I'm going to off myself. Now, she wouldn't have done it, but it was probably the best thing she ever said because they immediately cued her and put her in a psych ward. So I remember driving back home right after my 40th birthday. I went and saw her and visited. Well, they did a CT scan and they found cancer all over her body. And she had had uh, a kidney tumor two years prior that they found uh, via a car accident, believe it or not. They did a CAT scan on her because she was you know, of age. And they found this tumor, took her kidney. Well, she never had follow-ups. The renal cancer came back and it had spread. And so, you know, I was going back home every two weeks during that time to see her and check on her and make sure she was good. And we had this immunotherapy plan. Um, and November 4th of 2021, she passed. So I went through this really crazy deal, man, where November 4th, November 4th, she died. November 12th, I buried her. November 15th, I flew to Mexico. <laughs> November 16th, I, yeah, November 16th, I had surgery in Puerto Vallarta. And November 19th, I came home um, with a much smaller stomach on liquids, right? And I tell people this all the time, like, part of the hesitation when you're morbidly obese of having surgery, it's pride, right? You feel like you're taking the easy way out. And I can say with complete certainty that losing weight via surgery was a thousand times harder than losing weight naturally. And it wasn't that it was physically harder because you have the tool. I can only intake three or four ounces at a time. But mentally, I was fighting addiction in a way that I never was prepared to fight addiction. And so I went through this like six, eight months of complete mania. Like I was manic and I didn't have a way to control it. My body needed a fix and I didn't have a fix to give it. And then I didn't have my mom. And it was, it was absolute, it was a nightmare. It really was. And even though I was losing weight and I was excited about that mentally, I was more a mess than I'd ever been just, just brutally honest. Well, I think that makes sense. Like I, I and I think it's something, you know, I've had a ton of guys on the show that have, have used surgery as a tool. And so I'm very much in that place of knowing that it, it's not a simple answer and it's not an easy decision and, and all of those pieces. But you're getting into something that I was going to ask you about, which is, you know, understanding that. So you have a physical barrier now, but that has nothing to do with your emotional relationship with food, your addiction. And when someone is losing weight, you know, like I, you know, for me, it was paleo and keto and different pieces along those lines. The option to use food, however I wanted to, was always still there. So there, there wasn't a barrier that my addiction was going to run into, you know, like their barrier, you know, you know what, you understand what I'm saying, like, and that's what you're getting at, like, there are times and, and there are going to be a ton of people that don't like even hearing me say this. But I agree that there, especially when you deal with when you're someone that deals with food addiction, there's a power to using surgery as a tool, but there's things that it intensifies, like intensifies Absolutely. that someone who is using a different tool to lose weight doesn't deal with. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'll be, I'll be honest, food became my enemy for a while because it was never comfortable, man. I couldn't figure out what I could eat and how, like, it was so frustrating. I remember I, I, <laughs> I ended up at Dunkin', Dunkin' Donuts of all places, and I figured out that I could eat a wake-up wrap in a black cold brew. And that became my go-to in the mornings. And the sense of peace that I got from driving through that drive-through 
and eating a nasty egg wrap with, you know what I mean? It was disgusting. Like, I don't even think I can eat it right now. But I got so much peace. That was the first time that I felt like I was winning. It was like, okay, man, I can eat this. Like, I know I can have this every morning. And then it was like I added a little yogurt, and that was good. And so I started around probably, so I had the surgery in November, probably around May or June. I started to develop a much like more consistent pattern in how I ate. And so that eased some of the mania, right? It was like, all right, I'm, I'm winning here. Um, but here's the thing. I really didn't do any physical activity until like this January, right? And we're only just starting April. So like I kind of was losing weight at such a rapid pace that when I hit my one year anniversary, I had went from roughly 530 pounds to 265 pounds just by food loss and uh, the uptick of physical activity that I was capable of doing, but nothing really intentional. Um, but what happened is in August of this past year, not only did I like, I got kidney stones, but I also left my job and I started my own company with some other guys. And so I build in this other transition, right? Greg, go ahead, Dave, just add more stress, right? So that was tough. And then in August, I played in a softball tournament and I swear I knocked the kidney stones loose. Like that's all I can think of. And I was dehydrated because I'm a soda guy. Uh, of course, always diet soda, right? But like I would get done from coaching football at night and immediately run through McDonald's and get an ice cold like fountain diet Coke. And I wasn't drinking water. So boom, six millimeter ki kidney stone on my right kidney, four millimeter kidney stone on my left kidney. And from August until December, every time I urinated, I was in immense pain. And then through coaching football and up and down all the time and in and out of a three-point stance, my right hip started to give me problems. Well, I never really had lower extremity issues. Like I still don't have like sore ankles or sore knees by the grace of God is all I can think of. But I always had a little hip pain. And so I think because I lost all that muscle... I didn't have like the structural integrity of my core and my hip. I went from like being able to coach football within a matter of weeks. I was walking with a cane and couldn't drive. So that was like August, September and into October. Um, and so that was part of the reason like there wasn't a lot of gym time because I just wasn't capable. And so I ended up, you know, just through a series of orth ortho appointments and stuff and MRIs. I had one ortho tell me I needed a hip and I was unwilling to do it. I ended up with a cortisone shot, started physical therapy mid-October and started to regain some of that muscle strength. And then that led to me running a little bit. And really it was my wife. She started a program in January. And mind you, in June, after my weight loss or after my surgery, she started to really take her diet ser seriously. And she did use keto. So from like June until even now, she's lost like 70 pounds. Well, that really helped me, right? Because now we're in cohesion. And so in January, she decided to start a program at a local gym. I think it was called Kickstarter. So I was watching her come back from the gym, just absolutely annihilated. And I kind of started to feel bad. Like I was like, man, I'm not doing anything. And so it started off with me running. And then I was like, man, I need to start lifting weights and start building strength. And the best lifters that I know are CrossFitters. And as much as like the cringy, culty side of CrossFit like turns me off, I just didn't know what, what where else to go. So I scheduled an appointment in January and I went down and I met with the guy 
and he and I talked and we went through some stuff and then through immense anxiety, I jumped into a class and immediately started going six days a week. So since January, mid January, I made a really conscious decision to maintain my weight because I knew in a large deficit, I wasn't going to build muscle. And so I've went six days a week since mid-January. As a matter of fact, uh, tomorrow will be like my 26th or 27th day straight with no break. And this is the thing. For me, man, It was. it's never been physical. It's all mental health. And what's happened since I peaked with my physical activity, that's brought me face-to-face with my trauma. But I feel so much more equipped at this stage of my life to face it. It doesn't scare me. I'm not afraid of it. I know that I was abused. I'm open to talk about it in ways that I never was before. And I think it's just, I don't know, I'm not a doctor, but I only assume it's because I'm putting myself through such physical grief that like it doesn't seem so scary, right? Again, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's how I can conceptualize it. And so what's happened in the time that I entered the gym until now is like, I'm beginning to work through like the spiritual abuse stuff and oh yeah, this makes sense. And some of the sexual abuse stuff and some of the physical abuse stuff and understand how they've led me down this road to where I am. And at 41, man, like I don't have an emotional relationship with food. I really enjoy food and I really, you know, like, but I'm pretty structured and pretty disciplined, but even like, my, my wife and I kind of take Saturday morning. We always go do a partner workout together at this CrossFit gym, and then we go have breakfast. I'm still very fortunate that I've been disciplined enough to maintain my volume, so I still eat like three to probably eight ounces at a time, usually never more than that. But I'm not afraid of anything. There's there's nothing that I could put in my body today at this stage where I and I'm not, you know, I'm not prideful. Trust me, I, I know that I have to be very guarded. But I'm at a stage in my life right now where, like, if I were to eat a donut, a matter of fact, I ran a 5K two weeks ago, my first one ever. And prior to that 5K, I started to get, like, antsy. I knew I needed I needed something, and I ate half a donut, and I was fine. Like, it was just whatever. It's just fuel, right? Um, so it's been a really, like, cool place to be because I, I don't fear it. I And I'm getting ready to join a challenge through our gym where I'm going to try to drop another, like, 15 pounds in May while maintaining muscle. But even that doesn't scare me. I just know that I have to adjust some things, right? And immediately when I started working out, my body was like, hey, dude, you can't live off two, three ounce meals a day. Like you need to feed me. And so I never upped my volume. I just upped my frequency. And it would be like, I'd get to one o'clock in the afternoon and have already eaten four or five times. But I was maintaining weight. And what, when what happened is a couple things physically. A, when you're that heavy as a male, your estrogen levels are through the roof and your testosterone levels plummet, right? And so my testosterone in the last year has tripled. So, or no, yeah, 300%. So over, actually over. So in April of last year, my blood work, my testosterone was like 202. And right now it's right around 700, and which, is, which is pretty crazy on your own. But, 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 it, but it's happened. And so my body is beginning to put on muscle and it's, it's a really odd place. Like it's, it's almost confusing. When I look at myself in the mirror, I'm like, what am I looking at? You know what I mean? Like, 
Um, but yeah, like that leads us to today, right? It's April 6th. I'm still kind of in this now the fitness journey and what that looks like. Uh, you know, I have some goals, not necessarily as much with CrossFit, um, but I can, I'll continue to do it as long as I can. But I have some, you know, competition things that I really want to do uh, in 24 and prepare my body for. And I think for the first time in 40 years, um, although I'll always identify as a fat guy and I'll always identify as a sugar addict, I don't feel enslaved, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. No, it does. Which is incredible. You know, and I, I, I hope, you know, you under, you know, you see, you know, especially when you talk about it, you, you see the culmination of all the work that you've done over the years. You know, you see, you know, even with the cycling back at different times and, and those different pieces, like there's a through line, like you said, of you never giving up. And I, I think that speaks a lot to where you're at today. You know, it's, it's that desire to find the right tools to help you and get you to the place that you need to be. So you can deal with everything. You know, you've shared a lot of things that you've dealt with that if someone were to just hear about those pieces, you know, the early, you know, especially your childhood abuse, like the trauma there, like the average person might not make the connection to how that impacted your eating habits 20 years later. But I, I think when you talk through it, there there's a through line there and understanding that part of your healing process isn't just about changing the size of your, you know, it, it doesn't at the end of the day come down to just changing the size of your stomach. You know, it does come down to what going through all of these different pieces have brought you to in terms of being able to process the experiences of your life, put them in context and understand what you need to be doing to take care of yourself. You know, so it's 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 great to hear, you know, where you're standing at today versus where you were standing at, you know, how many years ago? Like, you know, the, 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 there's some power there, man. And one of the things that you have done, too, is you you've you've gotten online. And you have an Instagram handle that I, I would like us to, to just, you know, I, I, I've been going back and forth, you know, once we get the scheduled, I'm like, do I put it in the title of the episode or do I save it for our discussion? Cause I feel sure. like, you know, I have to be the, the, what is it? Um, the detached observer, the reporter um, in, in this situation. And I have to ask you, explain to me your Instagram handle and, and let people know what it is. Yeah, so the Instagram handle is fat people are liars. And it's actually that term in my head is about 20 years old. You know, here's the deal, man. <clears throat> there is a, a marked difference uh, between the individual that is 50 to 60 pounds overweight and the individual that is morbidly obese and hundreds of pounds overweight, right? And the best analogy, or not even analogy, but the way I can relate to it is like, I started listening to Joe Rogan's podcast probably in 2011, and I really value a lot of the stuff that he says around fitness and around, you know, eating. But there's an area that, in my opinion, he gets drastically wrong, and I would say most fitness professionals get drastically wrong. And he talks about, if you've ever followed that podcast, they do a Sober October, and that's been a weight loss challenge, and there's been Burt Kreischer and Tom Segura and these guys involved with it, right? And they just shame the crap out of each other. None of those guys are morbidly obese, man. Like, they're 50, 60 pounds overweight. Burt Kreischer's probably 250. I just saw him in, uh, live probably a month and a half ago. He's probably 260. That's discipline. It's a different conversation entirely. When you're morbidly obese, you live an act of addiction. And I, I don't view myself any different 
than the strung out crackhead or heroin addict or alcoholic. And in order to live that life, there's a few things that are constants. They have to be, they just are, they're the case. One of them is that you don't value you. So you live with this lack of value at all times in who you are and in what you're worth. And you're in constant state of dishonesty to you and to other people. And I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with morbidly obese people, and I know you've heard this too, that one of the first things that comes out of their mouth is, Dave, man, I, I don't eat very much. Well, that's a, that's a lie. Y you do. Because if you didn't, you wouldn't be 400 and some pounds. Like you wouldn't be 250 pounds overweight. It's impossible. Like you don't just gain weight. Like, and I'm not saying that there aren't some genetic conditions, man. I'm not saying that. But there's very few genetic conditions that lead to gross morbid obesity. What leads to gross morbid obesity, what I know to be true for every person that's been honest, is that you live a very sedentary life. You binge, whether it's in private or public, but I would say most times those types of addictions happen in private, right? That's just a constant. It's, it's what it is. It's how you, you, you consume that amount of calories. So sure, you might not eat a lot around other people. That I can buy. But you are binging somewhere. There is an element of who you are that's living in a state of devalue towards yourself and in a state of dishonesty. And since my addiction is food and I was very fat... In my head, and I only like to focus on myself, like when I'm talking about that, I, I can only really talk about, I, I don't want to broadcast to anybody else. So because my issue was food and because I was fat, I just lived with the understanding that fat people are liars. When you're in active addiction, active addicts live in a state of dishonesty. And that's where it comes from. It's really just a mantra. It's a reminder that if the worst case of who I was as tattered and torn as I was internally, it was my dishonesty with myself that allowed me to continue. It was the procrastination. It was the I'll start on Mondays, right? Those were all lies, man. They were all lies. And I lied a lot to myself and to other people because I did make excuses, right? We all, it's just impossible not to when people ask because it's embarrassing. So I did say stuff like, oh, yeah, my family's big. And you know what I mean? I learned it from my mom. And well, yeah, I learned it from my mom as a kid. But at 18 years old, even if I don't have the capability to work through it, I'm still become responsible. Right. As an adult, like I still was responsible for my decisions and my choices that I chose to do to ruin my body. And. I would run from that honesty. I would run from that introspection, even though I knew it to be the case. For those 20 years, man, I lived in a world and in a worldview of dishonesty. And so it's a reminder to myself and I hope to other people when they hear this that you can't be that big and that out of function with life and be an honest individual. Well, I mean, and let's be realistic. And, and it's, it's words that sometimes people see as harsh being applied to a situation, honestly, like calling it what it is because... 
I mean, let's be real. You know, you were over 500 pounds. I was over 500 pounds. Like living at over 500 pounds is not sunshine and rainbows. Like, but you start, you know, and, and I think even part of that dishonesty is to yourself, you know, like it's, you know, it's almost more so to yourself than to anyone else because it's the, you know, and I love this, you know, I love using the example of the meme of the dog sitting at the table of the house on fire and saying, this is fine. Like it's literally the house burning down around you and you're saying it's fine. And often you're saying it's fine because you know that saying it's not fine is going to take you away from your addiction. You know, it's, it's going to change. It's going to have to, you know, that at some point, regardless of how you do it, what you do with food is going to change and not being willing to do that is, is just so entrenched in it all. Like it, it's just, and it's, it's deep. Like I, I said, I've said it a, probably a hundred times on this podcast and the, the 200 plus episodes, like when you are someone who has been significantly overweight, you are incredible at convincing yourself of things convincing yourself that things are fine, convincing the people in your life that things are fine. And so I, I always say that I, I think people that have been or are, you know, significantly morbidly obese are, would probably make the best lawyers because we make the most convincing arguments in the world. You know, we convince ourselves that, like you said, you know, seeing your ankle swell, like dealing with the waking up, dealing with breathing issues. Like for me, it was if I scraped my legs, they would leak fluid, but you know, that's okay. I have to pee every 10 minutes. That's okay. Like the things that we can convince ourselves of. So I think it in like, you know, you eloquently talked about this at the very beginning. Like when you start lying for whatever reasons, it gets easier and it gets easier and it grows and it becomes more entrenched in your behavior. And so I, I understand the person hearing that Instagram handle being personally like a little, having a bit of an affront to it because they feel like it's painting a blanket statement. But it's speaking to a very specific issue, you know, with a set of, you know, and people will say, like you said, you know, is there, are there disorders that might cause a minuscule and it's not even one percentage point, but like 0.0001% of the the population to put on weight in ways that do not obey the laws of thermodynamics, you know, doesn't obey calories in, calories out, like Yes. Does that exist? Probably. But you run that percentage on the number of people in the world that are this weight, and it equates to a handful of people. So for the rest of us, there are things that we're not facing, whether we're choosing not to or not. And I also think like you can, you can also 100% believe that you're, you feel okay, and things are great and all of that. Because I think that the dishonesty gets layered with some very strong denial. It gets layered with this these, these other issues and they all start to become entrenched. And so digging your way out of it all has so much more to do with, you know, things beyond what's on your plate in the end, you know, when you you achieve weight loss, like it's, it's unpacking all of these, it's like unpacking a well-stocked refrigerator, but really it's got nothing to do with at the end of the day, what you eat, you know, it's got to do with, are you addressing these things? And I, that's why like, you know, like you said, you're not that familiar with my story. You know, I was 540 pounds, I got down to 200 pounds in 2013. And I put on almost all the weight back in six months, because I had done zero work on my head. And all I had done was chase the scale. All I had done was care about what was on my plate. Because I was terrified that if I started to address any of those other things, I was going to have to face things that I didn't want to. Yeah. And go ahead, go ahead. No, I was going to say this. Uh, I've actually followed you. So let me say this preface. 
<clears throat> my Instagram got a, got hacked in December. So I, I, I mean, I'll thank you, really. I followed you for a long time. My old Instagram, we've actually talked before on Instagram. My old Instagram handle was Fen underscore Tastic, so Fantastic. And in December, it got hacked. So you were one of the first accounts that when I started Fat People for Liars, I went and found. So I do know some, like I watched, I watched you go through that transition some, just not the, obviously the ins and outs, but there's a few of you, man, Arpino and Poro and, you know, there's a half dozen or so guys, man, that I've got to watch their journey that have been incredible, even at my heaviest at 530 some pounds that have been incredibly, and I know you've had some of those guys on the show, like, and, and I'm sure they listen. So I you know, take this as a thank you, all of you, like have been incredibly inspiring to me. Um, and you are right, man. Like I, that denial, it's, 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 it's almost like laughable now that I, th I look think back of it, but we do, we convince ourselves of, of crazy things. And I, I don't know, it is like, I, I was very fortunate, super lucky. Uh, when I went to Mexico and he gave me my EKG, I was scared to death because I have heart issues on my dad's side. And that doctor stood at the end of my bed. I'll never forget him, man. He was a little tiny Hispanic dude named Dr. Rios. And I mean tiny, like five foot three, 120 pounds. And he looked at me dead in the face and said, David, I've never seen a guy your size as healthy as you. And I said, I'm fat, man. Like, I just like, get this surgery done. Like, I didn't have a fear in the world about that. Like, I remember even going down to anesthesia and the doctor being like, dude, you don't seem nervous. I'm like, I'm not nervous. He's like, at all? And I'm like, look, man, I'm 530 pounds. Like, I'm on death's doorstep. Even if my body isn't telling me that I am, like, anything can happen, right? So even this last year, Gormy, when I had the kidney stone problems and the hip problems, there was so much solace in that, what if this would have happened a year ago? If I'd have had these kidney stone problems and hip problems, like when I couldn't control my urine, like I can't even imagine the agony. I may have ended up in a nursing home. Like at least this time with my hip, I was able to roll over and lift my body up on its own and get up to where I could walk, right? Now, there were times where I got up to walk and my hip jolted me and I fell right over again, but I could get up off the ground. So like it was a it was a weird place because I was in immense physical pain. I would argue some of the most physical pain I'd ever been in for both the hip and the kidney stones. But there was an element of solace that came along with that that it never derailed the path. I was so grateful, and I think you would say the same thing. If there's one emotion that I think comes through this whole thing, especially when you face those demons and. My wife and I have talked about this and I feel like I told her one time, I said, I feel halfway schizophrenic because I can like picture this. I have a picture in my head of what the demon behind me looks like. And it's like, I can audibly hear that dude sometimes. Right. But when you face it, if there's one thing that comes out of it or did for me, it's gratefulness. And I've been able to find the areas of my life in the people in my life throughout my history of trauma that were there to believe in me and to speak wisdom into me and to speak truth to me and to be honest to me. And, you know, like there's, man, I, so many people, like the list is, is endless that I am eternally grateful for because even if I wasn't ready to receive it, which I wasn't, and even if I wasn't equipped to put it to action, which I didn't, at 41, where I'm at now, those words still stick. 
right? And so like Instagram accounts like you and Poro and Arpino, like they meant a lot to me then because they were very raw. Like I, there's a picture that you post or if you, I think you even repeat post it where you're like sitting down and your belly's huge and you have like something on it. Mm-hmm. And like a picture, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like that picture, man, like it, it spoke volumes to me, right? And just your ability to be so transparent about your journey and be like, there was never a blockage. It was just, hey man, this is who I am. Like I can picture your face at the gym and it's like, yep, I'm here, right? And so Poro, same thing. Like that guy's been brutally, brutally transparent and honest about his journey. And JRP as well, the same thing. Like watching that guy's transition and watching those photos and those short video clips. You guys have done wonders, man. And and that's like really when I started the Fat People for Liars page, that's my goal is to, you know, such immense trauma. But to hopefully that there's people out there, because men especially, right? We don't, especially when you deal with men and sexual abuse, there's so much embarrassment that goes with that, right? And so the whole goal for me is to be able to, in a very raw and honest and authentic way, be able to put my story out and give those guys some hope just to say, look, man, you don't, you don't have to feel useless. And yeah, it may not be food addiction. Like maybe that's not your crutch. But either way, like that trauma has impacted you and it's going to continue to impact you. And in any way that it's manifesting in the negative, it doesn't have to. It happened and it sucks and it's not cool, right? And it wasn't right. There was nothing that happened as a kid that I looked through the abuse, any of the abuse that I think was okay or right. But I'll be honest, I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't trade it because at 41 years old, I have a sense of gratefulness for the people around me and the people that I believe God had provided to me that I'm not sure I would have had otherwise. Understood, man. It, we have the capability to understand our experiences and our trauma and be able, like I said, you know, put it into, put it into context to where your life is right now and understand the things that came because you came through it, you know? And, and I think sometimes, you know, part of that thought then becomes that if I hadn't gone through those things, where would I be today? Like, you know, and I think that's a, that's a great, it's a, it's a really hard place to get to, but it, it's like making peace with our experiences and also not letting our experiences drive us, you know, as the, you know, not, and when I say drive us, not just like, you know, be the foundation of our actions, which will always be, but allowing ourselves to take the wheel. And those are trauma, are, are the, the moments where we have been in that place of abuse are not the only thing that has control of our life. You know, it's like understanding, you know, what you can learn and growing from there, you know, you, you're showing every day the importance of that. So I appreciate your willingness to come on the show and talk about all of these things and continue that dialogue because I think that we, and you know this, like, I don't think we talk, you know, I talk about it every week on this show, but as far as, a, as society goes, we, there's a lot of things in here that we don't talk about enough. You know, like I, I feel like we could spend another hour even talking about the fat people are liar side of it, you know, and talk about the understanding, like much in the same way that telling someone who's overweight, just eat less is not an adequate way, you know, to help that person find health. 
I also think just telling a, a, a person whose life, you know, has some intrinsic untruth to it, just telling them to be honest is not helpful. Like, you know, it's about understanding that there's growth that has to happen in, in habits and skills that we didn't learn in our lives because of the things that we've been through. You know, it, it's, there's just so much there, you know, so understand that anyone listening, there's nothing easy about anything that we're talking about. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's no, no, man. It's, 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 listen, you got to pay the piper. Like you got to go through the work. It's work. It just is. And you have to face the demon head on, but the bright side is you can do it. Like we all can do it. Like you're a living proof. I'm living proof. Like it can be done. You just got to put in the work. Like it's, it's, it's real. Like it's for sure real. But, but also I would say this, you got to lean and learn to lean into those people that matter and those people that care and those people that do speak truth. Right. And I've learned that over the last, again, just six or seven months that there's people that I didn't expect to lean into that I may have written off a little bit, but that have been resounding voices of positivity in my head. And even if we're never super close, I lean into them because I know what I'm going to get and what it is, is truth. Right. 100%. Well, Dave, I have really appreciated everything that we've talked about today. I end every episode with five questions I call the Fat Guy Five. Are you ready for your run through those questions? I'm ready. Okay. So question number one, man, living or dead, who is your favorite fat guy? Oh, man. My favorite, dude, Billy Bob off Varsity Blues, for sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Understood. He was he was a great guy on screen and also a great guy off screen. I got to, yeah. to know him a little bit before he passed away. And, you know, I I, I always I, I like hearing him come up. So I appreciate that, man. Uh, question number two. Dave, tell us something about yourself that you love. Man, I love competition. Like anything in life to me is a competition. I think I just love to compete. I like it. Question number three, through everything that you have been through, man, what would you identify as the most important new habit that you've built? Well, lately it's, it's, it's that physical activity. It's the gym. It's that ability to utilize the physical activity as a mental health tool. There we go. Dave, question number four, what is one goal you have for the next year that is not health, fitness, or weight loss related? Matt. I want to go to Cedar Point and ride roller coasters. Mm. Like, I know that sounds crazy, but that's, I haven't gotten to do that yet. And I will get to do that. I think that's awesome. And, and because I, in some ways too, there's a side effect there of COVID times and shutdowns and everything, you know, when you lost your weight, like there's some things that we didn't have access to, like, you know, so that, that sounds like an awesome, that would be, that's something that's awesome. I'm a roller coaster guy, you know, I love stuff like that. So. And for years, I was not an amusement park guy for many, you know, obvious reasons. Um, Question number five, man. If you could go back in time to yourself, you know, go to go back in time to day one of of your weight loss journey. So this time we're going to talk about, you know, we'll put it in the context of when you arrived in Mexico. What is one thing that you would tell yourself? Don't be afraid. There's nothing to be afraid of. Mm. Like fear riddled my life mm-hmm. for the better part of my life. And it would be to not be afraid. Like there's just nothing to be afraid of. I like it. 
Well, Dave, thank you again so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. I, uh, this is It's kind of weird. You're Like I said, you're kind of a fat guy celebrity to me. I know that's kind of strange, but I've been following your page for a while. So I'm honored to be here, honored to tell my story, and, and honored to help anybody in any way I can. Definitely, man. And I know people are going to be inspired hearing what you had to talk about and are going to want to follow along. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes to Dave's Instagram. We know we've already talked about what it is. You know, fat people are liars. Um, is there anywhere else that people can reach out to you that you want to talk uh, about? No, not right now. There will be. I know I have some plans to put my story to video mm -hmm. uh, and and be looking for that in the coming months just to kind nice. of, again, that's out of my comfort zone. Like video scares the crap out of me, but mm -hmm. just, just to put myself out there and really, A, lead in with what fat people are liars in and explain that or what it is and then begin to tell my story because really what I want to do deep down is tell other people's stories, right? Mm -hmm. And this is what kind of this is as well. So we probably share that passion some, um, but Instagram is really, really the spot, but my DMS are open, man. I respond. If anybody has questions, like feel free to uh, shoot me a DM and I'll, I'll generally respond. Awesome. And I look forward to seeing that video when it comes out. Dave has joined me here on the main show and we are about to jump over to the after show. So if you are not yet a member of the Fat Guy Forum Patreon, there's a link in the show notes for you to check it out and join. There are 26 after show episodes now that you have to catch up on where we continue the conversation. So check those out if you are not a part of the Patreon yet. Please do that. And hey, everyone, you can connect with me as well, of course, on Instagram at Gourmet Goes Keto. On Twitter at Gourmet Goes Keto, you can email the show at thefatguyforum at gmail.com. Often people forget the the. So I people will message me and be like, I emailed you a while ago. And I'm like, well, I didn't get it. And then we discover why. So the is important on that email address. And then, my friends, once you're done with all that, remember, go out there, do something today to amaze yourself because you're the most amazing people I know. Then catch us here on the next episode of the Fat Guy Forum. Mm -hmm.